Well, good morning, guys. I don't have quite as much energy as Jose, okay? But I'm excited to be here, too. And we get to continue our sermon series called Come and See, and we're learning about who Jesus really is as we go through the book of John. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been, uh, I, I love going through books of the Bible, and we've kind of done a, a, a quick tour through the book of John. And looking at one specific thing, really, um, this theme that John shows us how we know who Jesus really is. John kind of reveals to us that Jesus is divine, that he is not an ordinary man, not an ordinary human. There's something different about us, that God came near, that he left heaven and he came and dwelt among us. And we get to see his miracles. We get to see how he taught and interacted with his disciples uh, we get to see how he revealed truth about who he was. And today we get to see the ultimate proof of his divinity, and that is that he conquered death and the grave. Now, <clears throat> this whole series has been an invitation to learn about who Jesus really is. And what's interesting about this morning, as I was kind of preparing this week, I'm like, I kind of got my holidays mixed up because I'm preaching an Easter message at Thanksgiving. Um, and so I don't know what you guys think about that. But I think it fits in perfectly because when you stop and think about what we're thankful for, the cross, the resurrection is at the heart of it. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about really the foundation of our faith. It's such an important message. Uh, it's one of the most pivotal events in all of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus. It's narrated in the Gospel of John. You'll see it in John chapter 20. Uh, so if you got your Bibles, you can flip there. We'll be there in a few minutes. Um, but before I get there, I wanted to talk about kind of a field of study within Christianity um, that you may or may not be familiar with. It's the study called apologetics. Um, and so if you're not familiar with apologetics, uh, it's kind of, uh, to me, it's almost like a misnomer because you're not apologizing for your faith. What apologetics is, is it's, uh, this, it's the act of defending your faith. Um, it comes from a Greek word, means speaking in defense. And so when you get into books that are written for apologetics or speakers who specialize in this, it's people who maybe debate or write books or argue or say, this is why we can know that the Bible is true. This is who Jesus really is. And these are the reasons why, the logical reasons, the, uh, the extra biblical historical accounts, the archaeological reasons, all those evidences that kind of come together that we can kind of to assure us, to reassure us who Jesus really is. Um, for me, I remember in college, kind of some of my first exposures to, to this. One, we had a, a speaker named Josh McDowell come to campus years ago, and uh, I went to hear him speak, and he told how he kind of grew up. His dad was kind of the town drunk. Uh, he was, Josh McDowell, he grew up just angry at God, just angry at what had happened, um, and when he got to college, he had some friends that became Christians, and they invited him to read the Bible, to go to church with him. And he was so mad at God, so upset about it, that he's like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to disprove the Bible. So he actually made it his life mission to disprove the Bible. Um, you can guess how that turned out, because now he is a Christian author, speaker, and has been for many years. And his son is actually doing some of the same work, Sean McDowell now, uh, traveling to college campuses and speaking today. Uh, another speaker 
that you may not know about, or another author, I should say, not a, uh, that made a huge difference in my life that was once an atheist is a guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis's amazing story. His mom died when he was 10, so he felt betrayed by God. He saw all the unjust and cruel suffering during World War I, and that really turned him against God. Uh, in his book, Surprised by Joy, he said this was his argument for atheism. He said, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Uh, so he just couldn't understand to make sense of it. But he went on to say he converted to Christianity because he realized the fallacy of his argument. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And so if you know the story of, of C.S. Lewis, he wrote many, many books, uh, things like the Chronicles of Narnia, as a way to defend his faith and his viewpoint. Uh, he was friends with guys like J.R. Tolkien, right, who were the Lord of the Rings. So uh, they were writing and meeting together, talking about their faith and working it out and figuring out how they could defend their faith in a world that didn't always agree with it. Uh, another author that I've read and has helped defend the, the Christian faith is a guy named Lee Strobel. Uh, maybe you've seen his books, A Case for Christianity. Uh, he, was, uh, a, he was educated at Yale Law School. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, and his wife converted to Christianity, and again, he committed to proving it wrong. Um, he was going to use his investigative skills and I, he was going to study, meet with the experts and, and prove why we can know that the Bible is not real. Again, he converted to Christianity and has written many books about it. And so I share speakers like this, guys like William Lane Craig is another one that's helped me to, to make sense of the world. And uh, you, you know, you see just this week I saw on the news that another famous atheist had converted to Christianity um, you see things like this, but here's why I say that. Because I believe when we investigate the truths uh, and the claims of Jesus, we're going to find the truth. Uh, when we investigate the claims, we're going to find what's true. Uh, if you seek, you're going to find. And I think when we have an open mind and we look at uh, the Bible, and I would say the Bible, the Bible is the most historically uh, attested to book in all of ancient literature. Uh, we have more copies of it, more manuscripts of it than any other book in all of history. We look at that, we see, um, all, we, we, we see archaeological evidence, we see the logical evidence, we see the, the evidence in the Bible itself, that the claims that are just absolutely amazing when you think about how this book was written by many different authors on different continents and how everything fits together perfectly. I, I mean, I don't think we could do that today with the Internet. And yet, we see it happen supernaturally with the Bible. And so I share that, all of that, just to say, if you're here today, and, and hopefully this series is helping, if you are a believer, hoping it, it, hopefully it reassures you. If you're searching, I'm hoping this will help you find out who Jesus really is. Uh, I want to invite you to come and see the Jesus who can heal your pain, who can heal your soul, who can change your life, who can put you on a new path moving forward. Um, so let's pick it up uh, in John. Um, I would say this, that the resurrection of Jesus 
is not just the cornerstone of our faith. It is the very foundation on which our understanding of God, our, His life, death, and our own very existence rest. Today we're going to look at this whole idea of, and this whole example of what Jesus did when He went to the cross, where He was crucified, and He was dead and buried, and then He rose again three days later. Um, I don't want to skip over the part about His death. We read a little bit in John 19 in our Scripture readings today. I'll kind of pick it up there a little bit. In John 19, verse 28, it says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. If this was the end of the story for Jesus... If Jesus had died as a common criminal on that cross, crucified, and that was the end of the story for Jesus, I would say that we would not be here today. What would have happened? His followers would have left. They would have disbanded. They would have ran their separate ways. Uh, He would have been exposed as not really being who he said he was and not really fulfilling the claims that he made that he would rise back from the dead. Uh, If he just died like a normal person, um, we would not even exist today, right, as a church, because there would be nothing to follow. Uh, As we keep going in the story of John 19, it's pretty remarkable uh, that we start seeing people recognize Jesus for who he really was. Verse 38, afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. So when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb that was never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We were introduced to Nicodemus earlier in this sermon series in John chapter 3 when he kind of snuck in to see Jesus late at night. Uh, And Jesus told him, you must be born again. And it's interesting because Nicodemus was so close to following Jesus, but he wasn't quite ready. He wasn't quite there. Now we see he finally acknowledges who Jesus really is. Doesn't really say uh, kind of the after effects because of him. He was a, a Pharisee and a, a Jewish leader. And, and because of that, when, he, when Nicodemus came out to take down the body of Jesus along with Joseph of Arimathea, This had to have huge social implications for him. We think both of them were were fairly wealthy. They were able to afford the burial spices. And if you remember from the story of Lazarus, uh, these these cloths that they wrapped around the body uh, would weigh like 100 pounds. So just think of a giant mummy, right? This is huge. And, and, And so they had the tomb that had never been used before. And so it was kind of their own private family tomb. Uh, And because of that, they put Jesus there and they laid him there. Now, they recognized there was something different about Jesus. 
They had their hope, their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But what would happen three days later would really ultimately prove it to them. That brings me to my first point. The ultimate proof of the divinity of Jesus is the empty tomb. If you want to boil everything down to how can we know that Jesus is who he says he is, how do we know that he is real, it comes down to the empty tomb. Uh, John 20, let's read the, uh, the scriptural account here in verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, I told you it was the Easter message um, on Thanksgiving. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They, both, they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that every single time I read it, that their two guys are competing to see who's the fastest, right? He stooped, he looked in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, he wants to make sure you know that he won. He's writing this, so he's like, I remember, I won, okay? Uh, he saw, he believed, for until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. So we begin with really the, the, the first you know, dawn on Easter morning as we see that Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb while it's still dark, only to find the stone, the stone rolled away, the tomb empty. Now again, the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure that Jesus... Uh, was in that tomb, right? They had soldiers stationed outside the tomb making sure that his body wasn't stolen. Because at any point after Jesus <laughs> rose back from the dead here, all they had to do to, to disprove this whole uprising, so to speak, was to say, here is the body of Jesus. Here's the body of Jesus. That, that's all they had to do to, to, to prove that they were false, but they couldn't do it. And I read this week, the empty tomb is a silent yet powerful testament to something extraordinary, something that defies the natural order in a world governed by physical laws where death is the ultimate and final reality. The empty tomb stands alone as a beacon of divine intervention. Lee Strobel would say in his book, uh, The Case for Christianity, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested to event of the ancient world. More evidence supporting that than any other event in all of antiquity, right? We see uh, that people outside of the Bible, the Jewish historians actually reference this event, saying that his disciples were telling people that he came back from the dead. Uh, we see this is acknowledged in, in, in the historical accounts. So, how do we know? How do we know? This is God's statement to us that death does not have the final word, word in our life. The empty tomb gives us hope that there is more to life than what we can see and what we can experience and, and what we can feel. It's not just wishful thinking, right? 
Uh, consider the implications of this. If Jesus really conquered death, if he rose from the grave, then all of his teachings, all of his claims about himself, all of his claims about God, uh, all of his claims about life and eternity, then we have to take them seriously. Would you agree? I mean, this is the one event that changes the course of history itself. The empty tomb is not just a historical curiosity. It's an invitation to come and see that our life is shaped by a higher power. That God still cares. That God has not forgotten us. That God has a plan and He is in control of what is happening around us. We've got to think about how this affects us. Again, if, 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 to me, I think about it this way. If Jesus, right came during our, I mean, if, if this would have happened in our lifetime, right? You, you would, if you experienced him coming back from the dead, do you think it would change the way you would live your life after you saw that happen? It would change you. Right? I mean, that, it doesn't happen. It would change the way you live. It would change the, uh, the, the way, it would change your whole outlook on life. You would tell everybody about it. If you met God in the flesh, you, it's going to change you a little bit. And that's, exact, that's exactly what we see happen with the disciples. It changed everything about them. The same disciples that were scared and running and fearful now became the disciples that were preaching boldly and going to their death because they would not deny this Jesus. Now, I've heard it said many times that the disciples would not have died for a lie. And that, to me, is that their changed lives, the, the, Paul's life, we see how he changed, going from killing Christians to being the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen, right? We, we look at that, and, and to me, uh, we look at that, and I, I can't help but think, this is, right, this is the evidence, these changed lives that we know, but it all goes back to the empty tomb. And so, as we study history... There are a ton of, of, of independently reported accounts of the resurrection. Uh, Tim Keller said this in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's what our faith is based upon. And so the empty tomb is the ultimate proof. But as we continue reading, we see there is even more evidence. That brings me to my second point, and that is that personal encounters are also proof of the divinity of Jesus. So let's keep reading in John chapter 20. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped. She looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot at the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you had taken him away, tell me where you put him and I will go and get him. 
Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found, found the disciples. She told them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. And that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Let's skip ahead a few verses. Verse 24. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, right, we have seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into, my, into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So here, the gospel writer John gives us a vivid account of how different individuals came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. These encounters are not just historical events. They are personal testimonies, right? And again, think about when the Bible was written. As uh, these books were written, they were being distributed and read in churches. Uh, as John was sitting there, they would say, John, did you really see him? He would say, yes, this is what happened. There were, the disciples were still around. People uh, that were followers of Jesus were still there to answer questions. And the reason we have our Bible now is because these books survived the early church of people saying, did this really happen? And they said, yes, it did. The, it was the personal testimony of the eyewitnesses that allowed us to have the Bible as we have it today. And so we, what we see here when Mary Magdalene first is standing outside the tomb and weeping, she is grieving. She's not paying attention to who's there, what's happening. He, she doesn't even recognize Jesus over in the corner until he calls her by name. And, and there's something here I don't want to skip over because I think it's important. When we're in the middle of our grief, when we're in the middle of a tragedy, we know, here we see that Jesus still cares. He calls her by name. He reaches out to her. When she didn't know where to turn, where she had lost all hope, Jesus called her by name and said, Mary. And that's all she needed to, to recognize him. He knows me. This is Jesus. And, and I would tell you the same thing in your life, right? When you're, when you're at that point where you don't know where to turn, you're grieving, you're upset, you're, uh, you, you've lost hope. It's when Jesus calls out your name and says, I'm here. I'm here. And what we see is he turns her mourning into joy. But he also, as we keep reading, we see with Thomas, he turns his fear into courage and his doubt into faith. All right? And so 
for us, I think about that, you know, Thomas, he's the doubting Thomas who refuses to believe until he can see the, the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He says, come and see right here. Put your finger here in, in, in the nail hole. You can see my side where it was pierced. I want you to see. I want you to experience. I want you to know who I really am. I don't want you to have any doubts. I want you to have courage. And did you notice what Jesus said both times with the disciples? Peace be with you. He didn't want them to be afraid. He didn't want them to be fearful. He didn't want them to be running around scared. He wanted them to have the certainty, the knowledge, the assurance that this is real. And then that's what they went and taught. And so I would say this, that the risen Christ meets us where we are in our journey. He wants us to know who He is. It's an invitation to come and see and experience who Jesus really is. And we see that through the book of John. We see that in our life today. That Jesus is inviting us to follow. And that kind of brings me to my last point this morning. Is that the resurrection, it gives us hope for eternity. It gives us hope for eternity. Uh, John 20 verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book but these are written so that you may continue to believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing in him that you will have life by the power of his name here's the gospel message the good news about jesus right here when we realize that the resurrection actually happened it helps us understand who jesus really is he is god in the flesh he is divine he is victorious over sin and death and he has come so that we might have life earlier in john it says the thief has come to steal to kill and to destroy but jesus says i have come that you may have life and have it to its fullest all right I, I want you to think about the the big implications of the resurrection here john says that it is written this whole gospel was written so that we might believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing we may have life in his name this is why this whole book is written. We're seeing this invitation to discover who Jesus really is. This passage is not just a conclusion to this narrative story. It's an invitation to experience a new way of life. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not merely an event that promises life after death. It's an, it's an invitation to experience a new way of life right here and now. It's about experiencing God's kingdom here on earth. It's about learning to live like Jesus. It, it, it's, it's a life that's characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a life that looks radically different from the life that's dictated by the world around us. And that's the invitation that John has given us here. This is, I want you to experience this new way of life, to be born again. Uh, to be saved, to, 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 to come to know who Jesus really is. What he's doing, he's challenging us to live differently in light of what we now know. Uh, you know, you look around at our world, and I mentioned earlier, um, this whole season leading up to Christmas is so materialistic. I mean, 
you know, Black Friday, your phone, if you've signed up for any type of text messages from any store, it was just buy this, buy this. You're all, you, know, you get all the email advertisements, you watch TV ads, and, and in essence, what they're telling you, if you buy this, you're going to find happiness. You need this to have meaning in your life, right? I mean, that's what they're telling you. You won't be happy unless you have this stuff. Can I tell you, you won't be happy unless you have Jesus. That's what you really need. Stuff is never going to satisfy you. And it doesn't matter how much you buy, you're going to want a little bit more. You want a little bit more. I need a little bit more. I need a little something else because you buy this and you oh man, this is going to really help me uh, be satisfied and find fulfillment. And you get it and you're like, two days later, you're like, you're already bored with it and you want something else. We think kids do that with little games and stuff, but we do it as adults. We buy a car and like, man, this is the car I've always wanted. You buy it and the next day you see something else. Man, I wish I would have got that one. Right? I mean, that's just the way it works. That, that always desiring what we don't have. The promise of the resurrection says that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is what we need. That Christ has overcome the world. That it doesn't matter what trial, what tribulation, what problem we're going through. That Jesus is there for us. And so how do we live this out? How do we demonstrate the love and the power of the resurrection in our daily lives? It's by letting Jesus lead our life. It's by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to live like Jesus with the Spirit's help. And it's interesting, there are three historical truths about the resurrection that I would say every single serious historian would agree to, even non-Christians. The first is that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday following the crucifixion. Everybody would agree to that. The tomb was empty. The second fact, Jesus' disciples had real experiences with one whom they believed was the risen Christ. It's the second thing. Everybody would agree to that, even non-Christian. Third, as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which had the resurrection at the center, right? That was their central message. The Christian church was established and grew. Those three facts are indisputable. And so my question to you is, what changed in the life of the disciples? It's the empty tomb. So it changed everything. That Jesus came back from the dead. That they had an encounter with the risen Lord. He changed their lives and He's still changing lives today. He's changed my life. Right? I think each of us, if you're a believer, you can go back and you can think about your life before you came to Christ. And you can think about the things He saved you out of and the things He saved you from and how He's changed your life and the things in your life that He's helped you overcome and uh, the, the, the anger for me and the, the bitterness and, and the frustration that now He's kind of pulled around and He's changed me. I'm a different person now. And there's no really logical explanation he took the shy kid from school that never talked in class that sat in the back row of every class if I could because I didn't want to talk right and that was all the way through college and now I'm preaching on Sunday mornings it's it doesn't make sense all right I mean it doesn't 
But that's how God works. He changes lives. He transforms us. And so as a result of that, our mission has not changed for over 2,000 years as a church. We can trace our existence all the way back to the events that we have talked about. Cornerstone is not a social club. Cornerstone is not a civic organization. It is a group of followers of Jesus who still have a mission today. And so I, I would say that in, in closing today, Jesus left his believers. I want you to do two things to remember me. I'm going to leave you two ordinances that you continue to do. And each time you do them, it's going to be a symbolic way of acknowledging who I am and why I came. The first is baptism. Um, and baptism, I love baptism because it, symbol, it symbolizes that we're identified with Jesus now. That we are dead, buried, and, and, and rose again. When we go into the water, it's like our old way of life is dead. And we come out of the water in new life. That our sins have been washed away. That we now walk in a new way of life. Right? It's a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. And so, uh, I love that. It, you know, the, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, right, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded, and I am with you even to the end of the age. And so that is the command he left us, to be baptizing people and teaching them and bringing them into fellowship. And so I would say if you are a believer and you've not been baptized, then why not? Uh, I wanna, we're, we'll be scheduling a baptism soon. We'll probably do one in January. Uh, I would love to do one. It won't be outside. It'll be inside. We've got our nice little baptistry we can use now. Um, and so I want to invite you to, if you've not been baptized, sign up. Let's, let's, let's make it happen. Let's publicly declare that I'm not ashamed of Jesus and I'm going to follow him. Um, that's the first thing, that way we, we remember Jesus. The second thing, as he met with the disciples, was the Lord's Supper. It's interesting, this week was Thanksgiving. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, we had our big family meal. We didn't do it on Thanksgiving Day. We did it on uh, Friday, because that's when our kids could all get home. And so uh, we sat down and we laughed and we ate a lot and um, we remembered a lot of things, right? We picked on each other a lot and said, Do you remember when this happened? Do you remember when, right? What, when we get together, you remember all those moments of life. It's interesting when Jesus was preparing his disciples for, for his death. What did he do? He gathered them together in a meal. And he said, I want you to keep doing this meal, even after I'm gone, and you'll do it to remember me. You do it because it's going to make you remember the times you had with me. It's going to help you remember those things that I said, and you can encourage one another with this. And it just it's a constant reminder of who Jesus is, of why he came, and not only that, but that he's coming back again. That he hasn't forgotten us. Uh, and so uh, it, each time we do the Lord's Supper, and, and what the Lord's Supper is, it's a way when we eat the bread and drink the juice, it reminds us that it, his, the bread represents his body that was broken on the cross for us. The, the, the juice represents his blood that was poured out as the once for all final sacrifice for our sins. And so every time we, we do the Lord's Supper, and it's, it's a time for believers to come together to, uh, just to remember who Jesus is, but also to look forward to His return. That there's going to be another feast one day where we get to sit down with Him 
in the future. And so we're going to do a little differently today. Um, I've got a video to play here in a minute. I'm going to ask while that video is playing, you just come up and receive uh, the elements, the juice and the bread. And we've got two here. We've got one back in the cafe. Um, and get those. Bring them back to your seat. We'll take them together. I'll pray with us once we get those together. Um, and let's, um, let's, the video is going to play and kind of explain things a little bit while we receive the elements. So you can do that now. things I love about the Lord's Supper is that it unites us with believers over the last 2,000 years who have done this. We're, we're, we're followers of Jesus, and we proclaim his death until he returns again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And as the scripture has revealed your identity to us, and we've seen the evidence in your word, Lord, help us to, uh, to share that truth with others. Lord, we ask that before we take communion today that you would help us examine our lives. And if there are areas in our life that need to change, Lord, would we pray for forgiveness and repent of those things and turn back to you? Would we uh, focus on who you are in living for you? Lord, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. 
Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people and an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I told you this morning was an Easter message. We've got a lot to celebrate. We've got a lot to be thankful for. And so we're going to close out with a the worship team. Y'all come back on up. We're going to close out with a, uh, with a good worship song here, a, a song that hopefully you can just really think about who Jesus is, why he came. We can celebrate the fact that the, the tomb is empty this morning.